0: scholars believe that where we are at this point in the gospel is potentially a week before Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is that weekend before the crucifixion of Christ, which is the last week. It's called Holy Week or Passion Week. It's the last week of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And I say that because it's important to recognize that if Jesus had a week or two with his disciples, that every account, every story, every conversation, every interaction that we read about is precious. And it's recorded for us to take it very seriously and not casually. And so as we look at this passage, what we recognize is Jesus has a lot to say and a little time to say it. And so we approach the text with uh, a great sincerity. I'm going to start in verse 32, chapter 10. Here's what the Bible reads. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, "'Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you.'" Did I do that okay? Was that? (laughs) "'And he said to them, "'What do you want me to do for you?' And they said to him, "'Grant that we may sit one on your right "'and one on your left in your glory.'" But Jesus said to them, "'You do not know what you are asking.'" Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the 10 begin to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Is that right? Amen. We have many reasons to believe that the Bible is God's word. I could talk to you about the reliability of ancient manuscripts, historical and archaeological proof, internal consistency found in scripture, fulfilled prophecy, eyewitness testimony. This is just to name a few. But besides that, we also have passages that carry such honesty and authenticity, it seems impossible to fabricate. And I think this is one of those passages, or at least it is in my mind. Because as we read it, we find that the disciples appear indescribably dumb and numb, and I don't have a better way to say it. Two of the four Gospels were written by direct disciples, and most believe that Mark Wrote at Peter's direction or instruction, and I just can't imagine that they made up these stories because we have a tendency in ourselves to make us look better than we actually are. And it seems to me that if they were trying to do such things, they could have done a better job because they don't look too bright. It shows us, though, because it's true what was in their heart, what was in their mind. And I think that at times when we read this, it's easy to judge. It's easy to use them as a test tube. It's easy to see what they could have or should have done. But I think we should actually relate to them because we have a tendency to do the same things. But you may not remember this, and I didn't until I really looked into it. As we look back, we remember that this is the third time that Jesus has talked to them about his suffering he told them, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. He says it to them three times, this is the third time. But can I remind you of what happened the first two times and how the disciples responded? Mark chapter 8 and verse 32, Jesus told them the very thing that was going to happen, his plan, and Peter rebuked Jesus. Do you remember that? Well, the second time is in Mark chapter 9, and verse 34, after Jesus told them the plan, the disciples argued about who was the greatest among them as they were walking on the road. And we see also here in Mark 10, that as they heard the plan for the third time, James and John approached Jesus with the request of reserving thrones on his right and his left. It seems that there is a pattern here, if you ask me. That while they should be thinking about what Jesus is saying, they should ask a follow-up question. They should seek some clarification because their Messiah, their friend, the one they're following has just told them, I'm going to die. And instead of thinking about what he's saying, they're thinking about themselves. They're pursuing a crown and not a cross. Even though Jesus is telling them what to do, it's clear they're not hearing it. Well, one thing that you can see as a result of these interactions is we can observe the love and the mercy and the patience of Jesus. He is so patient with them after these interactions. He keeps telling them the same thing because He wants them to know. But we also can observe the flawed thinking and the personal agendas that the disciples continue to to have And why did they have that? Well, they still thought Jesus was going to manifest some type of conquering military strategy to put himself and, of course, them on the top of the food chain where they would dominate everyone and everything. They didn't perceive that Jesus was pleading with them to exchange their plan and their desires, and their examples for his, but he constantly was doing that. You need to let go of this idea, you need to let go of this pursuit, and you need to take up what I am telling you. And they often don't even get what he's saying. And the reason is, is because Jesus is a different kind of king, and he brings a different kind of kingdom than they thought, but he is the king, and his kingdom is the one that we need. And we find here that Jesus, I think, is asking them, To exchange multiple things as I'm talking about a crown, which represents the authority and the power that they're looking for. I think there are a couple things in the passage that we need to exchange if we're going to do that. The first is we must exchange our plans for his plan. Look at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those followed were fearful. He took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. And he said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. There's a lot to unpack here in this point. But notice it says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. It says that twice, going up to Jerusalem. Well, if you look at a map, they're going south. So what does this mean? It has a double meaning, actually. The first is that Jerusalem has a higher elevation. So just like I had to walk up these stairs, it's a higher place you go up to. Even if you're heading south, you're going up to. And so they were doing that naturally. But the second part of this is a spiritual ascension in a sense. It's one of worship where Jews from all over during the feast would go up to Jerusalem, they would sing the psalm of ascents, they would sing in celebration as they would bring their sacrifice to the temple. And isn't it a beautiful picture that the sacrifice that is being brought is none less than Jesus the Christ, the unblemished lamb who is going to present himself as a sacrifice once and for all humanity. It's incredible. Jesus was walking on ahead of them, which speaks about the disciples, and it seems like there's a crowd traveling with them, and there's two uh, descriptions of these different groups. One being the disciples, it says they were amazed. The disciples were astonished at the determination of Jesus. Why? Because they knew that there was something not good on the other end of this journey, They knew that at the end of the road, something bad was going to happen to Jesus, and they saw Jesus pick up the pace. It says he was walking ahead of them. He was determined to get to Jerusalem, and they knew that wasn't a good thing, at least the way they thought of it, but Jesus knew he had purpose in it. So they were astonished. That word means amazed. They were surprised. It's not typical. It's not normal. It's not what they thought they should be seeing. The hostility of the religious leaders was at an all-time high, and this was incredibly dangerous as far as they could tell. They couldn't fathom this, and it shows the ignorance of his plan. They still don't understand what is happening. And it also shows their resistance towards any type of difficulty or suffering. Let me say it to you this way. Jesus's plan was not their plan. Jesus's plan was not their plan. Their plan was that Jesus rise to power and that they would rule and reign alongside him. But Jesus kept telling them that's not what's going to happen. So I think at this point they knew, okay, that's not going to happen. I think they had plan number two. I think plan two was that, okay, if Jesus isn't going to come into that power that we think he is to do what we think he should, then let's keep this itinerant ministry thing going because I really like this gig. This is really awesome. We have enough food, we have enough money, everybody likes us. I was a fisherman, I was a tax collector, I was a nobody, I was an entrepreneur, I was a zealot. So you got all of these people and they got pulled out of their lifestyle and now they're around Jesus and crowds and miracles and multiplication of food. Hey, let's just keep the show going. That's their plan. But that's not Jesus's plan at all. It also says about the crowd that was following that they were fearful, they were afraid of what lies ahead. And there were people in the crowd that were like, should we be following Jesus? Because if he's going to die at the end of this road, I'm not sure if I want to follow him to death. I'm not sure if that's what I signed up for. I'm not sure if that's what I want. So they were frightened. They were afraid. So you have those that were amazed and you have those that were afraid and they were all a part of the crowd. And then Jesus does something really special where he pulls the disciples aside. And for the third time, he tells them what's going to happen. He clarifies the plan, but he gives them four more pieces of detail that he didn't share in the other two times when he talked to them about the plan. And those things were this. He tells them for the first time that this death is going to happen in Jerusalem. So now they are sure as they go to Jerusalem, Jesus is saying, I'm going to die there. It's going to make them more scared as a result of him saying that. So he's very clear. The second thing he tells them is both Jews and Gentiles are going to reject him. They didn't realize the Gentiles were a part of this. The Gentiles are going to be the ones the Jews hand him over to. So they're sure that this is going to happen in in every camp. The the third thing that we see is Jesus adds the word condemn. It says, I'm going to be condemned. And that's a judicial sense. That's a, a verdict is going to be rendered. It's not going to be some angry mob. It's not going to be a person in the middle of the night. It's going to happen in public There's going to be a verdict rendered, and uh, the judicial system will be a part of it. And then he gives them detail about his torture. He says, I'm going to be mocked, spit on, and flogged. I mean, he details his torture. If you you think about it, you could read Isaiah 53, and it reads right out of the suffering servant. But Jews did not associate Isaiah 53 with with the Messiah who was to come. They, they didn't see it that way. They still in Judaism do not see it that way. It's a mysterious passage. Don't read Isaiah 53 in Judaism. We don't know what it's referencing. But the reality is that if you read Isaiah 53 and you read this passage, you see that you could actually see the details right there and, and they all work together. And all of this torture and pain, this plan as it were, plays out in Mark 14 to 16 The disciples are processing these words, but look what Luke's version of this account says after Jesus tells them the plan. Verse 34, but the disciples understood none of these things. Everybody say none. None. Not even one. Not even one. Three conversations, they understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said by Jesus. I want to tell you today, Jesus did not hide the meaning from them. In fact, there was no, uh, the spirit of God was not covering their mind, blinding their mind. That's not what the scripture is saying. It's not that God hid it. It's that they couldn't perceive it. They couldn't, they weren't listening for it. They weren't hearing what Jesus was saying because they had their own plans. They had their own fears and they had their own resistance to what Jesus was saying and they did not accept it. Jesus was rebuked by Peter. Then they were talking about who was the greatest, and now they're just saying, look, we're not sure what he's doing, but I want a throne if I can help it. I mean, at this point, what we have to realize and that we can relate to is that we can be a lot like this, that we don't have ears to hear what God is saying. We have ears to hear what we want to be said. And so when God is trying to speak to them, Jesus is Speaking to them. And they're not able to hear what he is saying because they don't agree with it. They don't like it. They don't accept it. And we can relate to that. We plan out our life. We plan out our family. We plan out our future. We make our schedule. And then we take a version of Christianity and we fit it into the puzzle of our life because it adapts really well to what we're doing and what we want and where we're going. And we thank Jesus for fitting into the Dixon plan. And we wonder why that when he's trying to speak to us and I want to hear him, I can't hear him because I'm looking to hear from God what fits into my version of Christianity, into my plan for my life. And it's centered around me. It's centered around my family. And it's not centered around Jesus Christ. And there is something profoundly wrong with our lives and it will always feel uncomfortable if all we do is try to adapt Jesus to the life that we wanna live. The first thing is sure, we will not hear the voice of God. Friends, you've got to look at this and what is happening here. The disciples who walked with him for three years couldn't hear his voice because they didn't want to hear what he was saying. They wanted to hear what accommodated them. They wanted to hear what made them feel better. They wanted to hear that they were gonna sit on the right and on the left and they were gonna get a crown and not a cross. They wanted to hear from Jesus that we are in the right place at the right time with the right person and we're gonna get everything that we ever wanted. Tell us what we want to hear. Don't just tell us the truth, Jesus. Tell us the truth that we want to hear. That's what happens when we have a plan and we want Jesus to fit in to our plan. Rather than Jesus is the center of the gospel, Jesus is the center of our plan. It's his message, it's his mission, it's his glory, it's about him. And so instead of asking God to speak to us about what we wanna hear, we say, God, what are you saying? No matter what it is, give me ears to hear and eyes to see. And I'm telling you, people who say that will hear the voice of God. They will not be hindered. They will hear the voice of God. He will land on that kind of life because he can use those people to do anything that he wants. Life is about Jesus. From the beginning to the end, it's about Jesus. So the question is, what is hindering you and I from hearing and heeding God's plan for our lives? What is in the way? What are the things that we want to hear Paul told Timothy that in the last days, people would flock to listen to those that will say what their itching ears want to hear. And I don't think those things are as obvious as we might think. We all have itching ears. We all have ears that want to hear something. We just have to learn how to deny that and pick up this book and say, whatever it says is what it is. I want to tell you that if we have a different version of following Jesus, if we have our plans before his plans, every time we pick up this book and we read something, it's gonna make us feel uncomfortable. And we know that's probably a sign that something is not right in what we're thinking. Because Jesus is gonna say, if anyone wants to follow me, he must first. Everybody say first. First. If anybody wants to really follow me, if you're really serious, then you have to first deny yourself. And then you gotta do the thing you don't wanna do. None of us do. You gotta pick up your cross this was, this was crucifixion. This was, this was a sign of death. You've got to pick up your cross and follow me. And, you, and we're reading that and we're like, ooh, I don't like that part. Let's go, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for a hope and a future and to bless you, you know. Come on, I'll do it. And we love all that. We don't want to read it in context though. We don't want to read Jeremiah 29, 11, which was a prophecy from a prophet who was going to lose his life at any time And he gave a word to people who never listened to God and were going into exile. And God gave them a word that was going to come to pass 40 years when they were all dead, that the only thing they could do is give it to their kids. So their kids would have some hope, even though they disobeyed God. We don't quote that part, do we? That the only thing that message was good for was a people going into judgment that they could pass it to their kids because they were going to die under judgment. But maybe God would bless their children even though they were disobedient. Maybe their kids would rise up and do what they didn't do. Well, we don't quote that part because it doesn't sell well and it's not on Hallmark cards. But it's in the book, ladies and gentlemen. It's in the Bible. You read it. Now, you maybe didn't wake up this morning and think, I'm going to listen to Pastor Ben rail on me. I'm not railing on you. I'm telling you, if you have the right version of the Bible, if you have the right version of his plan, if you have the right version of discipleship, the best life is the obedient life. We've got to get the right version. We've got to have the right plan. And if we don't have the right plan, we will always feel uncomfortable. Reading this book will feel uncomfortable because it won't accommodate that plan that we've already predetermined. He has the right to make the adjustments that he needs to make so that Jesus can be glorified. Do you say amen to that today? If it's about Jesus, then it's got to be about him from beginning to end. And so we see that he's asking them to exchange their plans for his plan, but also to exchange our desires for his desires. Look at verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I'm gonna keep going. And he said to them, what do you want? And they said, grant that we may sit on your right and your left in your glory. And he said to them, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're asking for. Clearly here, James and John do not understand his plan, and they have a really serious issue with self-importance. I'm really important. So I'm going to make the request and hope that he grants it. Do for us whatever you want. In Matthew's version, it says their mom went to him first. So this isn't a contradiction. It just means that his mo- their mom was there as well. So their mom was asking, and the boys were asking. They were all asking the same thing. And, you know, their mom just loved the boys, She wanted the best place for her boys. What mom doesn't want the best, you know? Sometimes moms and dads are wrong. (laughs) Lord, would you do this? (laughs) We don't pray like, do whatever you got to (laughs) do. That's a good prayer, though. (laughs) Amen. But here's what's going on it'd be like hearing from your best friend tell you one day that they have stage four cancer, and the next thing out of your mouth is, I just want to know what's my place in the will. It'd be like your best friend that you've been walking with for years saying, you know what? Uh, I have stage four cancer. My life's going to come to an end shortly. I'm sorry to hear that. Did you fill out your living trust and is it signed? And there's a couple chairs in your living room that I've always wanted, you know, the gold-plated ones. I was wondering if I could get those from you because I've really wanted those. And since, you know, you're not going to be needing them, I'm wondering if maybe I can you can write that into your will. I don't want there to be a dispute after you're gone. I'd like you to just sort of say it for everybody else to hear, i.e. the 10. That's what it's like. That's what's going on here in case you think I'm being a little harsh. I'm not. They're asking Jesus for the right and the left, seats of honor in the Jewish community. That's what those would be you have your banquet host or your, your guest of honor at a banquet, the right would be the most prominent place next to them, and the left would be the second most prominent place. And of course, even more so if it was a king. On the right side of the king and the left side of the king, these prominent places, they're places of honor, they're places of status, they're places of glory, and that's what they're asking for. We want the seats of power. And it might sound random. Why would they ask for the thrones? Why would they ask for that? Well, because Jesus made them a promise. And we didn't read it last week because it's in Matthew's account when Jesus talks to them about the rich young ruler. But look what it says in Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's clear he made them a promise. But what James and John were doing is they were trying to secure what thrones they were going to get. (laughs) And does it show you something? It shows you that when Jesus speaks to them, they're not just hearing what he's saying, they're hearing what they want to hear about what he's saying. So when he says something, they're thinking selfishly, how can, oh, we're gonna get a throne, there's a promise? Okay, James and John are kind of negotiating, like, I don't care if I get right or left, but I gotta get one of them, so let's go up to him first. It reminds me of this, and this isn't like just my kids, because they're here today, and I don't wanna dishonor them. I love you guys. But it's like whenever I've hired a young person to, let's say, like work on my house or do something on my house, and I, I negotiate the terms, you know, here's how much you're going to get paid, and here's what I'm looking for you to do, and then they, we all agree, and then I say this all the time, I say, okay, I need you to do a good job, and they go, yep, absolutely. I go, well, oh, that's pretty quick. And then they go off, they run, And then they get the job done, and then they come back to collect the money because the job is done. And I ask them the question, did you do a good job? And they always say very quickly, yep, did a great job. And then I do what all of the skeptics like myself in the room do. Unashamedly, I go look at the job for a thorough inspection. And I find that my standards are just a little bit higher than their quick and fast, yep, I find that the job is not that good, and I come back to said person, and I say, you need to be more concerned about the job that you do than the money that you make. And he, there's too many amens right there. It was like a murmur. It was the, like the men in the room like, amen. <laughs> it's just beautiful. I love you. You know, you found someone you like. All right, but here's why. If you're more concerned about being faithful, if you're more concerned about doing a good job, if you're more concerned about obedience, then what you get out of it will take care of itself. You want to know the secret to promotion in the world? Is that you give your best and you will cut from the rest. If you do your best and you're just concerned about giving your all and doing your best and showing up on time and having the right heart and having the right attitude and we stop worrying about what we're going to get out of it, I'm telling you, people can't help but promote those type of folks. That's just the way that it works. And you see it right here is that they're more concerned about the throne. They're not thinking about a cross. What they want, friends, is they want a crown. I got a crown. Come on. Yeah, there we go. That one. It's actually real metal. It hurts. I put it on last night. Never again. Never again. They want a crown. They're looking for the crown. And Jesus is trying to reorient them. So he asks them two questions. The first is Can you drink the cup that I will drink? And they answer him Yes, we can. And they're thinking it's like a gold cup, they're thinking it's a chalice. It's a victory cup. It's a king's cup. Can you drink the cup that I'm drinking? And they go, yes, sir, we can drink the cup. And you've got to trust me. I don't have time to bring this to bear. But what he's really talking about, the Old Testament conveys that the cup is the cup of God's wrath it's all of God's wrath against sin. And that it says there's going to come a day where the wrath of God is poured out. The cup of his wrath is poured out upon the earth. And everyone that abides under sin and not the blood of Jesus is going to have the wrath of God poured down on them. And it will equal eternal separation from God. And that's why we preach the gospel. That's why we have missions is we are saying that as the wrath of God is poured out, we don't want anyone to abide under sin. Because if they do, they will experience God's wrath. He's not angry at people, but he is angry at sin. That's clear from the Bible. And to disagree with that is just to not read the scripture that is going to get poured out. And he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they say, yes. He says, you don't even know what you're asking for. You cannot drink this cup. This is not the king's cup. This is not the victory cup. This is not the golden chalice. This is the cup of God's wrath. It says that it was poured out on Jesus when he was crucified. It says in Isaiah 53 that it pleased the father to crush the son. It says in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The wrath of God was poured out on him. And for those that believe and put their faith and trust in Jesus, we don't have to experience any judgment at all. We experience a glorious eternal life with Jesus Christ, our Lord, because he took what we couldn't take. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't even know what you're talking about. He says, can you undergo the same baptism that awaits me? Yes, sir, we can. The baptism, the immersion into suffering and his burial into the grave, into the tomb. He says, yes, we are able. We can undergo this baptism of glory. And he says, in a sense, you will drink that cup. In a sense, you will undergo that baptism. And they did, not in the same way. Not for the sins of the whole world, but they did. They did suffer, didn't they? We know John was exiled. We know James was murdered. He was killed. He was martyred for his faith by Herod Antipas. They did experience some of that, but not all of that. They didn't know what they were saying. But Jesus was telling them, you need to be more concerned about the cross and not the throne. You need to be more concerned about the cross and not the crown. You need to go after what I'm telling you. Be faithful, be obedient, and watch life come from that. It's antithetical. It's opposite. It's the subversive kingdom. It doesn't make sense, but I'm telling you that's the way it is. The world's going to tell you the opposite. And that's where he goes into telling them this final thing. In verse 41, we need to exchange our examples for his example. Hearing this, the ten begin to feel a certain way with James and John. That's the B-I-V. (laughs) They begin to feel indignant. Why? Because they didn't get there first. Like, oh man, we lost our opportunity. First come, first serve. Calling them to himself, Jesus said, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way with you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first should be last or slave of all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus calls their attention to the example of leadership among the Gentile rulers. The Gentile rulers love power and authority. They love to tell people what to do. They love their amenities at the expense of other people to fulfill their fantasies, their desires. They don't mind squashing the little guy because they believe that they're the big guy. They don't have a problem with that and they do not want to be told no. The Gentile rulers. And Jesus is saying to them, it is not to be this way among you. You are not to be like this or to follow that path that is not supposed to be your example. And he's saying, if you aspire to this type of greatness, then you will become like the rulers that you don't even like. You have watched them exercise authority and power and misuse it time and time again. You've seen the oppression of your people and the people of this world, and you're looking at them as your example, and you think that's the way that this kingdom is going to come, but I'm telling you it's different, and it is what you need. You want to act as they are. If you aspire to that form of greatness, you will be like the person that you despise as they oppress the people in your world. Jesus is saying, switch your example. He's pointing to himself. Look at me. I'm the example. Follow me. You need to deny the other paths. And he says this, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Even the Son of Man, the one that deserves all glory and honor and power, even me, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Follow my example, not the ones that exercise power and authority over people that you despise. Stop pursuing the crown. Stop pursuing the throne and start embracing the cross. How do you do that? You learn to serve. You learn to humble yourself. God is calling his people into a place of service not some casual Christianity, not some version that fits or accommodates our life. He's calling us to be servants of all, to be people that are willing to lower ourselves because we don't think highly of ourselves. Those are the people that find the best life in this life. I was thinking as we bring this to a close, I was thinking about Mark fifteen Don't worry, we'll get there in like a, a couple months. Mark fifteen twenty seven and it talks about two crosses. Jesus was crucified on the hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. He was crucified next to a thief on his right and a thief on his left, and it tells us that as he's being crucified, and these are on his right and his left, that he has an interaction with them. They both witness that Jesus is something special about him, In fact, one of them even says to the other, because he stops to mock, one's mocking and the other says, stop that. This man is innocent. He doesn't done anything wrong. We deserve punishment because we've done something wrong, but he doesn't deserve it. He recognizes something special about Jesus. And I don't know if there's a parallel between the two thrones and the two crosses in Mark 15, 27. I don't know, but it's what my mind was drawn towards that Jesus was marching them toward Jerusalem to die on the cross. He was marching them toward the cross that he was going to bear, but that he's calling them to take up the cross. Jesus was killed, murdered, crucified between two. And I think it's a prophetic picture if you ask me, that while he was dying on the cross and those two were contemplating who was in the middle of them and what he had done and why it was happening, one said to him, one said to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was professing faith in Jesus Christ. He was telling him, I believe there's something special. I believe that you're the Messiah, and I don't know why you're being crucified. It doesn't make any sense to me at all, but I believe that you are that one. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise But friend, remember this, while one was yielding and surrendering his heart, the other one was resisting and mocking still to the end. And it's a prophetic picture that as Jesus has given his life for us, Jesus spilled his blood for us, Jesus paid his all for us, that we, like the thieves on the cross, those who are guilty, those who have sinned, those who have done wrong, we have a choice of what we're going to do with Jesus. The innocent one, the one that didn't deserve it, but the one that came to take our place, to take the wrath of God upon him so that it wouldn't have to abide on us in our sin. But in our sin, we can resist or we can surrender. And that's what we see at the end of Jesus' earthly life. There was a choice, one chose right and one chose wrong. The question for us is what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Look at what he said I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Why did he say that? Why did he say that? Because we are bound in our sin and we need something and someone to free us because we cannot free ourselves. Why did he have to die? Because we are bound in sin. Not kind of bound in sin, not a little bound. We are bound, shackled, chained in sin. That's why we do missions. That's why we preach the gospel because there is no freedom outside of Jesus Christ. Pursue it if you will. You will not find the freedom outside of Christ. Until we kneel before the cross of Christ and recognize his resurrection power, we cannot have freedom in this life. And Jesus says, I came as a ransom for many. A ransom is this, is to pay for the freedom of one who is bound, to pay a ransom price. And Jesus paid that price with his life. With his life. So how do we respond to that? Well, we have an amazing opportunity today as we do every month to receive Communion to come to the Lord's table and as we prepare for that I want to encourage you if you don't have communion elements today we need to if you could grab those for me guys could you hand that to me if you don't have communion elements you can get them at the front of the stage here or right there at the sound booth if you're online you can go ahead and gather up whatever communion elements that you do have there at home so we can receive together but as we're preparing for communion let me say a few things to you about it Jesus suffered disloyalty from his disciples. Even the people that professed their love for him, they were disloyal to him at the end, weren't they? Jesus suffered rejection from his own people, injustice, ridicule, physical torture, emotional pain, and even execution. Listen to this, even though he was innocent. But I want to tell you something today. The fact that Jesus was innocent uniquely qualifies him to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Because he was the sinless one, he paid for us once and for all. Look what Hebrews 10 verse 14 says, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are set apart. And the Holy Spirit testifies to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law, the one that we couldn't fulfill, he will put his law upon our hearts. And on their minds, I will write my law. And he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer a need for an offering for sin. Why? Because Jesus' one offering, one sacrifice was enough so that you and I would never have to bring an offering. It means there's nothing we can do. There's nothing that we can do to earn a place before a righteous and holy God. The Son of God did it for us. So when we come to the communion table, what we are saying is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We humble ourselves and we come before him and we evaluate our hearts because in our own hearts can be lust and pride and jealousy and envy and hate. It's all touched us. The spider web of sin, we all understand and have experienced it. We've all participated in it. And so we come to the communion table, the Lord's table, and we look upon our Savior and we say, thank you for what you did. And we evaluate our hearts and we say, Lord, help us to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ Jesus. I cannot pay you back, but I can give you my life, the very thing that you've given me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.